0: Last week, as we began the second half uh, of the book of Ezra, uh, sort of divided in two, uh, we said that uh, in the book of Ezra, there are two things that we see God God doing among his people as he's rebuilding his people. In Ezra chapters 1 through 6, we see God rebuilding his people for formal worship in the temple there in Jerusalem as the temple is rebuilt. Uh, bringing the, uh, after God brings his people out of exile in uh, Babylonia and there in the, the Persian Empire. And we said that beginning with Ezra 7 and going through the end of the book of Ezra, God is uh, rebuilding his people through the leadership of this uh, scribe and priest Ezra, not just for formal worship of God in the temple, but for informal worship of God in daily living. Today we'll continue to see that theme play out and see the kind of living that God is intending to build his people for and bringing them back together as we consider Ezra chapter 8. Ezra 8 gives us specific details about the return of the uh, the people that came with Ezra from Babylonia. In chapter 7 we get kind of a, a summary of when they left and when they arrived in Jerusalem and in chapter 8 we get some more details about what happened along the way. And as Ezra leads the second wave of uh, returning exiles back to Jerusalem, uh, he does so, but but not before ensuring that there are sufficient uh, servants, sufficient Levites to serve in the temple that they're returning to, and, and he's not going to lead the people without fastidious prayer for God's blessing on their journey. The idea that I hope that we will uh, see from the text this morning is this, that uh, God's people live out their calling. They live out their calling to, to uh, live with uh, lives of worship uh, through faith-filled obedience. That is what Ezra and these others are, are displaying, a faith-filled obedience to God. God has called them to go back to Jerusalem, and they are being obedient to that call. God's people live out their calling through faith-filled obedience. And God desires obedience from His people But the kind of obedience that God wants is only that kind of obedience which flows freely from trust in His perfect provision. God does not desire obedience to Him out of obligation. He doesn't command our obedience in order to tick certain boxes, in order to prove our worth to Him. Rather, God desires our obedience to flow from joyful hearts that are full of faith and trust in what He has provided. I hope from Ezra 8 this morning that we would leave having a fresh sense of freedom in our obedience to God, fresh sense of liberty in our service to God, as we rely upon Him to provide all that we need for what He has called us to do. Look with, we're going to look at all of Ezra chapter 8 today. Uh, we'll read it all, but not all at once. So stand with me, if you would, as we uh, honor God by reading from His Word. Ezra chapter 8, at first, just verses 1 through 14. And this is going to test all of my Hebrew name reading skills. Ezra continues recording this history of the people who are returning from exile. He says, "These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar Daniel, of the sons of David Hatush, of the sons of Shechaniah." Who was of the sons of Parosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, of the sons of Pahath Moab, Ele- oh, already got me already, Ele-Hohenai, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men, of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men, of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephathiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, Shelomith, the son of Josephiah, and with him a 160 men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men, of the sons of Adonicam, those who came later, their names being Eliphalet, Jeuel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men, of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. God, would you bless us as we read and study your word this morning for your glory and our edification in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. God's people are to live out their calling through faith-filled obedience. God desires obedience from His people, but only that kind of obedience which flows freely from trust, from faith in His perfect provision. And in Ezra 8, we see many of the markers and many of the effects that faith-filled obedience has through the life of God's people. We see first in verses 1 through 14 of Ezra 8, that faith-filled obedience bears generational fruit. Faith-filled obedience bears generational fruit. We begin here with this genealogy, this list of people who returned from Babylonia to Jerusalem with Ezra under his leadership this genealogy has some similarities and some differences to the, to the similar listing that we have in Ezra chapter 2. Now, the listing in Ezra 2, it's much, much longer uh, and, and much more detailed in terms of who exactly came back. But there are some similarities between these two. The similarities are these. Uh, uh, all of the heads of household that are named in Ezra chapter 8 are the same ones that are mentioned are, are all mentioned Excuse me, in Ezra chapter 2. So we have this completing of the families who began to go back to Jerusalem out of uh, exile in Persia. The families are complete, but there are some differences as well. The chief difference is uh, in the order of the people that are returning, the categories of the people that are coming. In Ezra chapter 2, we have listed first the lay people and then the priests and the Levites, the sons of David, sons of Solomon, servants, gatekeepers, etc. But here in Ezra chapter 8, we have first the priests that are mentioned, the, the sons of Phinehas, Phinehas being uh, one of the sons of, of Aaron, who was a priest. So those who are in the line of the high priest. We get uh, also the, the sons of the line of David, uh, the one being there, Hattush, uh, indicating uh, Ezra indicating that the messianic line, the, the, the line of David is continuing. It has been preserved even through exile and even now with this second uh, group of returnees. The point of this genealogy, I think, is to indicate for uh, the, the original audience of Ezra and for us today that though it has been 80 years since the first return, The return of 538 BC, which we read about in Ezra chapter 2. Though 80 years have passed from Ezra 2 to Ezra 8, the family clans that began to return from Persia are now complete. Put yourself in the shoes of one who returned under King Cyrus, uh, the generation 80 years before Ezra chapter 8 believing god was calling you to to do a hard thing and going to a hard place leaving your comfort in babylonia to take up hardship for god's glory in jerusalem you may have left behind some grandchildren great grandchildren left behind brothers or sisters to follow in obedience to god to do the hard thing that he was calling you to do only several decades later to realize and maybe even after your own death maybe you didn't even weren't even able to see with your own eyes that your faith in God's provision, your obedience to His call, would bear continued fruit when the descendants of those that you left behind followed as well. Faith-filled obedience bears generational fruit, though not always do we get to see it. Christian parents and grandparents, have you followed Jesus faithfully for years in the footsteps of your Savior only to see your children and their children walk away from Him? Be not discouraged, but live on in bold and active obedience to Christ, trusting that God will take your legacy of dependence upon Jesus, of faith in Him, and that He will cause it to bear fruit in due time. Dear friend, with loving trust in Christ, press on in His call upon your life, knowing that obedience to God, which flows from joy and faith in Him, will bring about the fruit that He intends, the fruit that only He can bring about. Amen. Christian, don't quit following Jesus just because you don't see faith in your children or your grandchildren yet. But press on. Boldly follow Christ, trusting that God will bring about all the fruit that is necessary and that He intends to come from your faith. Faith-filled obedience bears generational fruit. But faith-filled obedience does yet more. Look with me at Ezra chapter 8, verses 15 through 20. Ezra continues, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemiah, Elnathan, Jarib, a second Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshullam, leading men. And for Joirib and a third Elnathan, who were men of insight. And I sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place Kasaphiah, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casaphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mahli, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen. 18 also Hashabiah and with him, Jeshiah of the sons of Merari with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Faith-filled obedience, secondly, motivates risk. Faith-filled obedience motivates risk. Here in chapter 8, verse 15, Ezra, uh, this leading man among the Jews that are returning now in about uh, 458 BC, stages the group of probably about 5,000 people at a river called Ahava just outside of Babylonia. And he finds there, as he's looking at all of the people, figuring out what he's got and who's where, that he has priests, but he has no Levites. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because of who the Levites were and what they did. Levites were sons of the uh, Israelite tribe of Levi, but they were not specifically of Aaron's line. Aaron was the brother of Moses. He was a Levite, but Aaron was the first chief priest, the first high priest. And after him, uh, uh, only could high priests come from Aaron's lineage. These Levites were those that were selected by God to serve in the temple uh, in matters of manual labor and service. They were kind of like custodians of the tabernacle and of the temple. They were the ones who would carry the various instruments and furniture of the temple in and out and make sure it was arranged accordingly. Levites would often, in the corporate, gather, uh, corporate worship of the people of Israel, would stand in for the people as formal representatives in worship. By the time of the divided kingdom, after King Solomon's death, when you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, during that time, Levites became instrumental in teaching the people of Israel the law of God. Now, why is Ezra leading this group of Israelites from Babylonia back to Jerusalem? Well, because as we saw last week, he has this call from God upon his life to teach God's people the law, to teach them his word and to encourage and enable them, to strengthen them, to live by it. So as Ezra looks about and he sees that he's got lots of priests and other kinds of people, but no Levites, we can immediately begin to see what his concern is. Ezra's task is to teach the people. And who before him were the most instrumental people in teaching the people of Israel the law of God? the Levites. But Ezra has none. So Ezra has a problem. It seems likely that there were no Levites at all in the group that Ezra was leading. Uh, not Not that there were no unwilling Levites among them, but that there were none at all. It does not seem that uh, there were no Levites in Babylonia whatsoever where uh, Ezra was coming from, but rather that there were Levites who chose to remain in Babylonia rather than returning with Ezra because they preferred their comfort in that city to the kind of menial labor, broom sweeping, that they would have to perform in the temple to which they were returning. So what does Ezra do? He's got this problem. He's got no Levites. None came with them from Babylonia. He responds this way. He sends a delegation of 12 men to a place called Kasaphia and to a man who is there named Iddo. Now this is not the same Iddo that is Zechariah the prophet's father. Their names are actually spelled uh, different in Hebrew. This Iddo was probably the head of a Levite training school there in Kasaphia. And so when Ezra's delegation of men shows up to Iddo and to Kasaphia and they express the need, hey, we're on our way back to Jerusalem, but we've got no Levites, we need some help. When they express the need to Iddo and his men there, there are 38 Levites and 220 temple servants who answer the call. They say, yes, we will go. We will not stay here. We will endure hardship. We will endure risk. We will go to do what God has called us to do. See, friends, how the absolute trust in God that Ezra has leads him to say, we can't go on without these all-important temple workers and teachers of the people. And see also how the trust in God and in his calling upon them as Levites and as temple servants, even without a temple to serve in, in Kasaphiah, leads these Levites and these temple servants to obey their calling and to risk everything, pack up all that they own in the span of just a few days and head back to rebuild the still ruined city of Jerusalem. Ezra believed God. The Levites in Kasaphiah are trusting God. Their faith that God will provide makes them obedient to go, even at great risk to their livelihood. And through it all we see, as Ezra says, the good hand of our God supplied Ezra's need and fulfilled the calling of these men, these Levites, that had been placed upon them by God. I wonder this morning, Christian, which of the Levites in this passage do you relate to? Do you relate to those who wished... To those uh, Levites who wished the returnees well, but preferred to, uh, preferred to stay in the hanging gardens of Babylonia rather than pushing brooms in the temple? Or those who out of love and trust in the promises of God obeyed Him at great risk, trusting that He would provide all that they needed along the way? When a call goes out in the church for servants, for volunteers, for preschool disciples and teachers, what is your response? Yes, I'll go, or... I'm kind of comfortable here. Surely someone else can take care of it. Dear Christian, trust God. Trust Him and embrace risk and the unknown as part of your obedience to Jesus. Faith-filled obedience leads, uh, uh, motivates risk in our lives. It motivates us to do what other people would say is unwise or maybe unreasonable, but, but, but we know in the course of God's working and according to his purposes is necessary. 20th century missionary who died on the mission field, murdered by the South American indigenous tribe that he was trying to get the gospel to, Jim Elliott, said before he left on that fateful mission, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, this physical life, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life with Christ and reward for serving in his kingdom. Amen. But friends, this call to radical obedience, this call to, to take risks for the cause of Christ is not a call just for missionaries. It's not a call just for the Jim Elliotts of the world. It's for Christians who get out of their own personal paradise to say, yes, I'll teach children God's word on Wednesday evenings. Yes, I will speak about the hope of Jesus with my co-workers. Yes, I'll use my vacation time to go on a mission trip. Yes, I'll answer the call to serve as a deacon, even though I feel totally inadequate. Yes, God, yes, to however, to wherever, and to whenever you call, because I know you'll provide all I need as I follow. Listen, Christian, we do not take risks in order to prove our faith. We don't do risky things to prove our worthiness to God or to prove our self-righteousness before other people. Rather, our faith in God's provision, our trust in Him to give all that is necessary, motivates us to do what some will at some time see as risky. Faith-filled obedience bears generational fruit. Faith-filled obedience motivates risk, and yet it does still more. Look with me at Ezra Eight, twenty-one through 23, and then verse 31. Continuing on, Ezra says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaties. Skip down with me to verse uh, 31. Or excuse me, uh, uh, yeah, verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We see, third, that faith-filled obedience depends entirely upon God. Faith-filled obedience depends entirely upon, upon God. So now Ezra's got Levites that have come from Kasaphia to join them on the way back. He has all of the people that he needs, but a new problem arises because ahead of them they have a 900-mile journey with lots of kids, several elderly, and a whole lot of money, and no armed guard. Ezra seems to indicate... That they could have had a guard, they could have had protection, they could have had a military presence escorting them to Jerusalem if he had simply asked King Artaxerxes for it. But Ezra was ashamed to ask Artaxerxes for it because he had already communicated, he already had boasted to Artaxerxes about his confidence in God's provision for the people. Ezra before the king Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in all the world, king of Persia at the time. Ezra says, listen, our God is awesome and his hand is for good on all who love him and who follow him. And his hand is against all who oppose his will. Our God is this great. And then as soon as he says that, you you can almost imagine in your mind, Ezra running through in his brain, oh, but we've got a long way to go. And I've made a lot. Uh, I've made much of this God that we worship saying how he provides for those who love him and is against those who oppose him. This would be a really bad time to ask for a military escort. And so he doesn't. The problem that they face now here at the river Ahava with a 900 mile journey ahead of them is this. How are we going to get there safely? With these 5,000 people and all of the things that we have with us, children, elderly, goods, and money, how are we going to get there without encountering any trouble? And the answer that Ezra knows and leads the people to pray for is by God's own hand. How are we going to get there safely? By God's provision. So, says Ezra, let's pray. Verses 23 and 31 go hand in hand to declare to us that not only did God hear their prayer as they fasted before him, But he answered it perfectly. The four-month journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem over 900 miles is completed with literally no account of anything along the way. 900 miles, day in and day out of, of breaking camp, hiking, setting up camp, breaking camp, hiking, setting up camp. The whole thing happens without anything exciting whatsoever. Apparently, the 900-mile journey is so boring that Ezra doesn't even mention any detail of it along the way. We left, on the, uh, we left in the first month. We arrived in the fifth month. God got us there. Amen. <laughs> I wonder, friends, what does our church life, what is our church organization, what are our leadership structures, what is our, our programming, what are our constitution and bylaws, what do all of these things communicate about what we believe will accomplish the work and the will of God? As a leader, I am constantly inundated with books, articles, even conversations with leaders from other churches that are regularly advocating the use of different schematics and structures and designs and goals for growing a bigger, better church. There's a constant influx of these sorts of things to me. And all these articles and books and even conversations with other leaders do is create in me frustration and angst and nervousness with a feeling that I'm never going to get anything done because I'm not as good of a leader as this guy or that guy. Or I can't implement that process in our church because of this or that reason. We have no army, says Ezra. (laughs) How are we ever going to get there safely? We have no 15-year strategic plan. We have no finely-tuned processes. We have no magnetic personalities. How will we as a church ever grow? Books on how to build a bigger ministry in 15 weeks are a dime a dozen, my friends. Do you know what aren't? You know what aren't a dime a dozen? You know what are a lot harder to find? Books and resources and pastors who are saying, "Christian, Christian leader... Depend on God. His will is good. Trust the Lord. His timing is perfect. Focus on Him. His way is unfailing. Obey Him. His purposes are delightful. These books are not a dime a dozen, but these are the resources. These are the people. These are the conversations that I have that comfort my soul as a Christian leader, that give me patience, that help me to shepherd better. These are the resources that sound a lot like what Ezra and his crew are advocating. We don't need an armed guard. We just need the Lord to protect us. We don't need military might. We just need God's presence with us. Faith-filled obedience depends on holy entirely upon God so friends we must also resource our obedience to God with the very one whom we are obeying resource your obedience with the one who with who, uh, with the one excuse me whom you are obeying our mission statement as a church is this if you haven't memorized it by now it's still printed on the front of your worship guide and use this as an opportunity to practice memorizing again our mission statement is this that we exist To glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a father who asked his young daughter to once do a simple task to... Uh, get her clothes into the washing machine and to start a load of laundry. Now, she was tall enough to uh, reach down into the basket and and throw her clothes into the washing machine, but she was still small enough that it was quite a challenge, uh, very difficult, to reach up above in the cabinet over the washing machine to get to uh, the laundry detergent to put that in. So the dad said, honey, go wash your clothes. And so she went into the laundry room. And for several minutes, he heard banging and clanging and bumping around. Eventually, the young daughter came out, frustrated, dismayed, almost in tears. She said, dad, I can't do it. He said, well, why not? She says, I've done all that I can do. I tried to climb on the, on the washing machine to, to get up to get the soap, but, but I couldn't quite climb up on it. I got all my clothes in and everything, but I just, I can't get to the soap. I looked for a stool to get me up there and I, I couldn't find anything that worked. I've done all that I can do, Dad. Dad turned to her and he said, no, dear, you haven't. She said, what do you, what do you mean? I've, I've done it all. He said, no, you haven't. You haven't asked me to help yet. You haven't asked me to help yet church how often how often are we as christians tempted to try to grow christ's kingdom to grow our church through means of attraction and means of entertainment and means of, uh, of 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 strategy that are conducted or put together by men and not by god and find ourselves frustrated to not be accomplishing what we feel we should be accomplishing making disciples of jesus Could it be that all along the way, God has resourced us with everything that we need to accomplish his call? We've just not depended wholly on him to do it. Our mission statement is that we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus, not by our own ingenuity and creativity, but dear friends, in the power of the Holy Spirit in the power that God supplies through his word, inspired by his spirit, which points us to Jesus and gives us all that we need for life and godliness. Faith-filled obedience depends entirely upon God, but it does yet one thing more. Look with me at verses 24 through 36 of Ezra 8. 23, verse 23, we fasted and implored our God for this. He listened to our entreaty then says Ezra, I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for, our house, for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel, their present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks. And two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Finally, see, we see that faith-filled obedience inspires selfless integrity. Faith-filled obedience inspires selfless integrity. Ezra and his crew are taking with them to Jerusalem a lot of people, yes, but also a lot of stuff, gold, silver, bronze, Individuals, temple furniture, all of it has to be cared for along this 900-mile journey. So Ezra delegates that responsibility to care for everything that they're taking back to the priests with the one caveat that it'll all be weighed on scales when they get back to Jerusalem and to the temple. Now, money in that day, coinage in that day, was not quite as standardized as it was in our day today. Now, today we have, uh, you know, if you pull a quarter or nickel or whatever out of your pocket, that thing is not made up of really very many valuable materials. There's, there's uh, virtually no silver in any of those coins anymore. There's no copper in pennies. Uh, there's not much, there's not even real nickel in nickels. And so there's not much of real value in our coinage today. But in Ezra's day, coinage was made of silver silver, was made of gold, and it was very valuable. And somebody who had maybe a lot of coins in their possession could take of several hundred coins and shave off a little bit of gold, shave off a little bit of silver, still return that coin or all those hundreds of coins back to the person that had entrusted it to them, but still have kept for themselves a number of shavings that they could melt down and, and create a goodly sum of money for themselves. And so the value of a coin was not in the size or the imprint that was on it. The value of a coin was in how much it weighed, how much gold was actually there. It it would have been entirely possible for these priests who were entrusted with this large amount of money to shave off a little bit and keep some for themselves. And yet, this is not what happens These priests that Ezra entrusts the money to, out of faith-filled obedience to God, who richly provides all that they need, demonstrate total integrity so that not an ounce, not a bit of what was entrusted to them was lost. When they get to the temple, it is all weighed and it is all accounted for and the sum is recorded. Now listen. Listen. These priests are not exempt from the stain of sin upon their hearts that tempts all of us to be greedy or to steal, to get a little bit more for ourselves. These priests are recipients of God's grace by faith in His promises, the same as you or me. They are not any more righteous than we are in God's sight. So how do we then account for their integrity? How do we account for their selflessness with all of the wealth that has been entrusted to them? Simply by faith in God to provide all they need even when they have ample opportunity to skim off the top. Why do they have integrity? Because they have obedience that is fueled by their faith in God. Consider, friend, what God has given to you and asked you, dear Christian, to keep or to manage. Do you do so with quiet integrity because you have come to trust in the giver of all good gifts more than in the gifts that he's given? Do you practice sacrificial giving and generosity in quiet and humble ways out of your joy-filled faith in God? Or do you make a habit of declaring your generosity before others? Do you like to be seen being generous? Do you like to be observed giving? Do you write your name and your offering amount on the envelope in large bold letters so your neighbor will see your generosity as the offering plate goes by? Do you aspire to discretion and humility in the manner of your giving? Or do you make sure that lots of people see you giving to the Lord? Listen, integrity with what we're given is about more than returning what was entrusted. Integrity with what we're given is also about the manner and the attitude of our giving. When we clang our coins into the offertory coffer for all the world to hear, we only sound the gong of our own self righteousness. The loud giver, the boisterous giver, has his reward. They have a reputation among a group. They have respect from others. They have a feeling of confidence because of what he or she is doing publicly. Their trust, though, is in worldly wealth to make them attractive to God, to make them reputable among others. But they have no integrity before him. Instead, the one who often gives much less but out of their poverty and in in quiet discretion really gives far much more and does so quietly and humbly so that no one ever sees this one this one who gives humbly, who gives quietly, who gives with discretion so that only the Lord sees what they give, this one has a heart that matches the Father's. This is one with real integrity. This one is content to trust our all-caring God with obedient, selfless integrity because He is the giver of all good gifts. Christian, the call is upon you today to practice true obedience. To trust the loving, sovereign God who provides what is truly necessary. Friend, God wants your obedience. He does. But he does not require your obedience to prove your worth to him. He does not require you to be obedient to prove anything to him. In fact, there is no number of tasks, there is no number of good deeds, there is no amount of money that you can give to prove your worthiness to God. Your sin against his infinite holiness has assured that it is impossible for you on your own to please him. But God is not delighted by our acts of religiosity, praise the Lord. God is delighted by our trust in what we have not done. God is delighted in the perfect righteousness of his Son Jesus, who gave his sinless life on the cross for sinners, a delight he, a delight that he imputes that he credits to us when we trust in Jesus. so friend, trust in God, because with trust in God and spiritual rest in his promises, these things always precede obedience. God wants your obedience, yes, but he wants faith. Filled, faith-inspired, Jesus-loving obedience that flows not from obligation to appease him or to please him, but from faith in the provision of his own son, Jesus, for us. So trust the promise of God made complete in Christ. The promise that is your forgiveness of sin. The promise of eternal life which you have not earned for yourself, but which God freely gives if you'll simply place your life and trust in Jesus, His Son. And in love for Him, in faith in Him, walk in joyous, faith-filled obedience. Let's pray together.